Hi listeners, before we begin, I wanted to remind everyone that February 17th is Anthropology Day. Help us celebrate and share our discipline with the world around us. To participate and learn more, visit AmericanAntro.org slash AntroDay. The link will be available in our show notes. Hi listeners, Alex here, one of the producers of The Sausage of Science. Today's episode is a little shorter and ends a bit more properly than what you might be used to. Our guest, Dr. Stephanie McClure's internet gave out right as she was talking about the difficulties of organizing a COVID-19 vaccine clinic in rural areas with weaker internet service. Oh, the irony. We still decided to post the episode as Chris and Kara had a chance to hear Dr. McClure's perspectives on some interesting topics that we think our listeners might want to hear. We hope you enjoyed this shorter episode and please look out for a follow-up episode with Dr. McClure in the future. up yo i am buried in snow how are you today it's raining here it's raining lucky you it started for rain like we had like a good four to six hours of rain and then now we have i don't know foot of snow maybe more and it's heavy like tree branches are bending to the ground right now Hmm. how i still have power i don't know i miss no i don't miss living in indiana sorry Oh, you know it's fun. Notre Dame actually called off yesterday. There was an official snow day, which, like, never happened. I'm just kidding. I like snow when I can play in it, and then I want it to be done when I go to this work. This is good play snow. This is totally snowman snow. Our guest is in the waiting room. Shall we discuss who we are talking to today? Yeah, and since our guest is your interdepartmental colleague, I think you should get the honor of introducing her this time. Yeah, sure. So Dr. Stephanie McClure is an assistant professor of anthropology here at the University of Alabama with me. She is jointly or or cross-trained anthropology and public health. She's done research looking at African-American girls' health and, and transitions in school. She's looked at sex and gender issues in athletics, something you could relate to. She's written on issues around assigning athletes to certain groups regardless of their phenotype, and then they discriminate against their athletic abilities. And uh, most recently, she's written for our special issue of American Journal of Human Biology with Ann Siebert-Kuhlman, a piece that basically was someone working in public health with anthropological training and someone working in anthropology with public health training talking about how they can collaborate and how they can work together. And they wrote the article as a conversation. So it was a really nice piece that really lets people into the conversation that folks must have. Speaking of conversations, we should probably have one with her right now. What do you think? Let's go for it. All right. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, Karen and Chris. How are you? We are nice good. Nice to meet you, Stephanie. I don't think I've met you. No, you have not. We have corresponded by email, but that is the extent of it. Anyway, welcome onto the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we always start every podcast the same way, and that's to get to know a little bit about you and how you as the scientists were made. So tell us a little bit about your background and your training and why you decided to become an anthropologist slash public health researcher. Okay, so I actually started out my professional career as a pediatric physical therapist, and I worked with children with disabilities, cerebral palsy, spina bifida, a little bit learning disorders, but mostly 
physical. And as I worked more with the children and their families, because you can't work with children in that context without being really involved with their families, I started to think sort of in the bigger picture, how might we prevent the kinds of injuries that these children were born with that created such challenges in their lives. And so I kind of got interested in maternal child health and healthier pregnancies and things like that. And so I was interested in sort of taking my studies further. And I was talking to colleagues in physical therapy and they said, well, the questions that you're asking actually sound like public health. And so at the time I was like, so what's public health? <laughs> and, and so they introduced me to some folks in public health and said, this is what they do. And so, oh, I was like, okay, you know, there's a specialization in maternal child health and I can do that. And, you know, it'd be great. I can pursue this and pursue this sort of new line of thinking. And, and the program at St. Louis University, because I was in St. Louis at the time, didn't have maternal child health concentration. They do now, but they didn't at the time. They had behavioral science and health education and epidemiology, and I was drawn towards both, but I ended up coming down on the side of behavioral science and health education because there was sort of more direct interaction with the public involved. And, you know, you went into communities and tried to promote health in various ways. And so I went for that. And that was really fulfilling. I took my eyes off the individual picture, which is where you are in clinical work a whole lot, and kind of went up into the trees, a broader view. And so that population health view really helped me kind of refine my questioning about well-being. But my training in public health also led me to some questions about the role of culture in health. And I didn't feel like public health did a terribly good job of answering those questions because it tended to reduce culture to a variable and try to like measure it as one thing. And even though I knew next to nothing about anthropology at the time, my experience as a clinician said, well, that's not going to work. And you know, the things that you guys believe about how culture shapes behavior give you maybe like about a half the picture and sometimes not an accurate half picture. So I was like, I need to find someone who knows more about this, right? And so I went to a conference and I saw a woman, I talk about it in the podcast article, who was presenting who had a degree in physical therapy in public health and her terminal degree was in medical anthropology and she was talking about disability and children in Haiti. And I was like, oh, I wanna be her. <laughs> And so there I was, I'd found sort of my final path. And because I had no formal training in anthropology, I had to kind of hard for a program that would take someone who was kind of a newbie to the discipline in case Western Reserve was one. And so I ended up there and I kind of never looked back. I brought my interest in the body identity and well-being with me and did my dissertation on physicality and identity among African-American girls and did my dissertation work in the U.S. and got hired by SLU again, but then got romanced away by UA, and here I am. <laughs> the romance brought you just in time for a pandemic, <laughs> as it happens, and your skill set has been invaluable, I, I would imagine. You're the lead researcher for us here at Alabama for a five-state national uh, initiative uh, called Communivax. That also includes a previous guest we had on the show, Professor Emeritus Kathy Oaths from our department. So I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about this project and if you found anything so far and emphasize maybe the medical anthropology, uh, public health approach that you've taken and, and why it's been important for you to be involved in that. 
So Communivax, we have actually six sites. We had a Virginia site come on later with some funding from the Kaiser Family Foundation, but we are six sites across the United States who were interested in equitable rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine and in ensuring and supporting communities' ability to engage productively with the public health and medical systems going forward to get the community's voice and sort of plans and actions around well-being, not only in an emergency, but in health overall. So our team did that in Alabama, and it looked different in every place. And so it was born as a joint effort of anthropology and public health. Emily Brunson, who is at Texas State University, is one of the lead PIs and is an anthropologist. And Monica Shakspana is at uh, Johns Hopkins University. And she has a long career in emergency planning and public policy and public health. And so it started out as a marriage of two disciplines to begin with right? Because the pandemic is a public health emergency, like it's the classic example of a public health emergency. And at the same time, when you're looking at things like rolling out a vaccine in a pandemic, or even trying to communicate about what's necessary for people to protect themselves and their families and their communities in a pandemic, you want that intimacy that anthropology brings, that sort of deep knowledge of community that we try for, you know, in all of our endeavors, because it's not going to be the case that you can sort of slap out a general message and reach everyone. And our healthcare delivery system is complicated and it's hierarchical and it's profoundly unequal. And so finding out how you might do your best to take care of the health of the public under such circumstances and in an emergency, I think actually requires that the kind of close knowledge of sort of closer look at context and at the lived experience of people in the community that that anthropology offers. So it started that way and, and that's really how we approached it. We wanted to get the number, the big numbers and get the trends, right? But we also wanted to understand how those numbers and trends worked out in the lives of people in Alabama. And we focused a lot on the rural counties because that was where it was quite difficult in the beginning to penetrate in terms of getting the vaccine into arms and even getting an accurate sense of what was going on on the ground. That's some wonderful example of applied anthropology and anthropology in action. And it would be general for even if you wanted to do a flu vaccine drive or like an MMR vaccine drive. But, you know, in the current state of the pandemic, it's really wonderful to bring anthropology to bear on what is a global crisis. And so, one, thank you for doing that work. But two, because that work is so incredibly important and so incredibly relevant, it has overshadowed a piece that you recently published, although I guess 2020 is not technically recent anymore. It feels like a decade ago, whatever. The piece is called On Integrity and the Risk of Generational Loss, Narratives of Preservation and Threat Underlie Policies Restricting Natural Testosterone in Women Athletes. And so yesterday was National Girls and Women in Sports Day. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart that I rail about constantly in class and on podcasts and in popular pieces that I've written. And so I see this and I'm like, ah, and I get really, really excited. So one quote in particular we'd like you to break down for us. Quote, 
Just a scientifically assured fairness is the Trojan horse in which the socially constructed preservation imperative is secreted. The second rationale offered in defense of the hyperandrogenism rules that failure to regulate hyperandrogenism risks the next generation of female athletes is an example of pathos, emotional appeal, masquerading as logos, rational argument. And I feel like you and I could talk about the argument of fairness versus the argument of harm for days, but maybe you could break down what that quote means for our listeners. So um, I first actually would like to say that perhaps I should defer to you, Kara, and let you sort of talk about this since this is your area of expertise. It's certainly an area of passion of mine, but it's one that I'm still learning about. And I, I wrote the piece because I was sort of up in arms about the whole hyperandrogenism thing, and I was invited to write a piece about that because of some of the work I've done with sort of body and identity and stuff like that. But anyway, what I'm trying to do is in that quote is kind of recapitulate the argument because I've talked about the first idea that we need to preserve the integrity of women's sports, right? But that that's really kind of a lie, right? Because particularly international elite athleticism has had this obsession with keeping women and women's athletic performance sort of cordoned off into this realm of acceptability that sort of jibes with their ideas of how women should look and what women should be able to do. And this agreement that women's athleticism is naturally capped in some way, that there's a boundary beyond which women couldn't possibly go because they're constrained by their femininity. So that's the Trojan horse piece, right? So this narrative of constraint and boundedness of female athleticism is what's in this Trojan horse of saying, we want to protect the integrity of women's sports. And if you hear the sarcasm in my voice, that's not an accident, right? <laughs> so, so, so that's the Trojan horse. Next part of the argument is that, you know, not only are we protecting it for now, but we have to preserve the future because if we get on this a slippery slope of letting women with too much testosterone in their bodies compete in elite athletics, then we're going to, and then of course that tracks back to like high school sports and everything, then we just don't know what's going to happen, you know, clutch the pearls, right? <laughs> and so it's this argument, and if you want to evoke a sense of panic and need for immediate action in people, then what you do is threaten the future of their children, right? Your daughters down the road are going to be stuck on the sidelines while all these butch fake women get out there and take the medals that should have been theirs. And of course, that's not what they're going to write, right? <laughs> that's not what the, the Olympic Committee's not going to write. That's not what the international sports bodies are going to write. But that's what they're saying. And then the other piece is that, that they're tacitly pointing to the global south and said, you know, these sneaky brown butch women who are really men, you know, are going to sneak up and take away from the flower of European womanhood their right to compete in that bounded space that we have labored since 1910 to protect from them. There are so many issues of one, just femininity, but two, reducing all of athletic ability to one thing and one hormone is biologically absurd, much less the, the cultural implications of this. And it drives me nuts. 
And furthermore, the paper that all of these, you know, testosterone restrictions have been placed only on a certain number of Olympic events, which of course, as you said, disproportionately affects women from the global south, that paper has basically been retracted at this point, which happened in August. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the retraction somewhere. I can send it to you. But they're basically saying like, yeah, you probably shouldn't be making policy on what this paper said because it's not saying what you think it said. And the Olympic Committee is also not regulating all sports that showed a correlation between high testosterone and performance. It's only certain running events under the mile, whereas like pole vaulting and I believe hammer throw showed a correlation and they don't regulate that at all. It's just been a while since I was coaching soccer. So I was a rant a minute on this topic for years because I vehemently disagreed with what I considered the segregation of boys and girls from each other in the soccer leagues, which undermines both of their development. And having grown up playing it and seeing many self-identified girls kicking the asses out of the boys, both for skill reasons and variations in male sex, female sex sort of developmental trajectories. Like these things mm -hmm. were going back and forth and like the separation just reified false narrative about development and skill set when sometimes certain kids were better than others because of their age and muscular development nothing to do with their sex or gender and then it flipped a few years later depending on how much investment they put into it and i saw all of that i want to toggle back to why we invited stephanie on when we invited her on because stephanie and her collaborator ann siever coolman co-authored an article for the special academics issue of ajhb that we co-edited and last week just appeared on our third webinar that we put together for the AABA. And in that article, one of the cool quotes by Robert Hahn, a medical anthropologist, epidemiologist who worked for the CDC for 30 years. And he said, quote, they use them, anthropologist, right? The CDC does, but it's always late in the game. Anthropology is never part of a planning response to a public health problem. This is sort of a straw man question, right? Considering what we've already talked about, but I'll just say it anyway. Is that really a problem? And if so, why? Yes, it is a problem. It's a problem to varying degrees, right? Because Anne, my co-author for the piece, is actually trained as an anthropologist, although her doctoral degree is in public health. But she did her doctoral work in an interdisciplinary program that was operated by a bunch of anthropologists. So one of the things that sort of attracted me to her as a colleague was that she tended to take that contextual view of really understanding the problem and encouraging her students to think through it and her research as a result is really thoughtful and she can offer that 10,000 foot view and then she can offer the on the ground view and so it is a problem it's not always a problem depending on how well the public health person has been trained in anthropology or in looking anthropologically, but it is a problem because in traditional public health training, as it stands now, there's still a lot of talk about cultural diversity and about cultural competence, but what gets sort of conveyed to most students is this sort of recipe-ish approach to culture, right? So you're going to learn the list of the things that you're going to do for this group, but then you still get that rhetoric that really 
again, kind of reduces culture to a variable or to a set of behaviors that have to be overcome in order to deliver whatever it is that you're trying to deliver to people. And so it's like I said about people not being made for theory, but theory being made for people. It's the idea that what we do in public health should be about how to bring what we have to offer to folks, not how to bring folks to what we have to offer. So they shouldn't have to perform a certain way, think a certain way, act a certain way in order for their governments or for non-governmental associations or whoever's doing that work on the ground to help intervene in that situation, for them to get the benefit of that. What it should be is that if I'm coming to rural Alabama to promote vaccination, that I, I know enough to not put the majority of my messaging about who's qualified for vaccination, how you sign up to get vaccinated, where the vaccines are going to come. I know enough not to put that on the internet or to have the internet be the primary means by which I disseminate that information because I know that broadband access in rural Alabama is crappy. So we lost Stephanie. We hit all the notes. We just didn't get to ask her what she does for fun. So a big thank you to Stephanie McClure for joining us today. And despite technical difficulties, we could talk forever about sports and various other things. And we'll totally have her back on. 